0: How do young millennials who've grown up lived in london their whole life how do they find hope and optimism at the end of the day that they'll be able to stay in the city that they grew up in build their life and family there
1: that's a that's a really good question and uh that really goes to the heart of a lot of this stuff because a lot of uh younger people see this in generational terms that the people above them more advanced in years, have done well out of the system. You know, they they're much more likely to own their own homes. We see the data supports that in the U.S., Canada, and elsewhere. Um, the you know, in the long term or the medium to long term, a lot of those people are going to be the policy makers, the people in the positions of power in future, and maybe in a position to do something about some of this. In the short term, uh, I think millennials and others really are at a kind of crunch point. You know, they've paid. Uh, a huge amount for their education, which perhaps their parents did not do, uh, that they are in debt or just struggling to keep their heads above water because of their high housing costs, particularly if they're in the private rented sector. And if you're in the private rented sector, you are probably paying money to a landlord who is looking to expand their own economic fortunes when when they come to retire. So these kind of questions are really uh, kind of challenging. I mean, the most obvious response to this is not to make a kind of partisan comment about which party people should uh, uh, support, but to look at the range of policies that that the uh, that the various parties do are pursuing, and to vote accordingly. You know, the the usually parties on the political right are you know they, they are more or less friends of people with capital, of homeowners, the people who are already doing well and political parties on the left are the ones that are saying, you know, we need to invest in public housing, look at questions of wealth inequality, uh, income inequality and all the rest of it. Now, I don't prescribe which way people should vote, but if you're going to get involved in city politics, if you're going to get involved in national politics, look to the suite of options and start to disentangle who's really benefiting from this stuff. Um, You know, the UK government at the moment has spent well over 10 billion pounds helping high, mostly high-income homeowners to buy a home. You know, the people at the bottom of the pile are not benefiting from some of this stuff. And the people who historically would be the middle class if the people exiting education, universities, and all the rest of it, the people that normally would have been going into higher-income jobs, owner occupation, you know, owning their own home and so on, they're really suffering. Uh, they're suffering from, uh, you know, the coming ecological crisis, what's that doing to cities? They're coming uh, in at a point where private capital is really, really winning, and it's winning in favor of pensioners and people on high incomes. So it's a kind of intergenerational econ- uh, of economic questions, but it's also about inequalities between, um, we might say, a capitalist class in the way that people like Thomas Piketty have talked about it in France. You know, people who... Uh, They're not on high incomes. They are the owners of enormous share portfolios of property and all the rest of it. Money just flows into their pockets without them doing anything. Uh, But I think a lot of those people are interested in getting involved in in, in these issues. They're seeing that, I, I guess there's a question about how can, how much can the system be squeezed to generate opportunities for the wealthiest? without just simply making the city a really problematic place for everyone to live. you know, How much does it degrade public spaces, make places more risky through crime, the loss of public housing, the loss of a sense of uh, amenity, and so on. Mm-hmm. All of those things are at the forefront of a lot of people's minds, whether they're the richest or the poorest.
0: And um, has Brexit changed any of this at all, or?
1: Well, Brexit is supposedly with us in about three weeks' time. Um, the one comment I would make about Brexit is it, well, there's a couple of things to say, isn't there? Really, <laughs> um, it has been a massively divisive issue. You know, to split a country more or less fifty-fifty down the middle. You see that mirrored in the kind of Biden-Trump politics at, at the moment, I guess, as well. That you know where. Where there's a roughly even split on an issue, that that really damages the fabric of society, it is polarised society. Um, One of the things that we can say about Brexit is that it is likely to be highly damaging to the absolute mainstay of the London economy, in other words, the city of London. Finance is likely to suffer, well finance won't suffer because it'll just move somewhere else. it's highly mobile. So the people with the money, the people who trade in the money, they may move or they already have moved to some extent to Frankfurt, Paris, Dublin, the other major kind of financial centers of Europe. So there's a kind of mobility there that can kick into play when London perhaps is no longer seen to be the epicenter. But there's a kind of political dimension to this because, of course, when one of the major arguments that we would make about London and the city of London Is that this finance economy really delivers a lot for everybody. It pays huge amounts of taxation that are essential to the workings of the state. Well, when those good times were rolling over the last decade, which is the the decade that the book covers, um, those people have not benefited. Many people in public housing have been kicked out of their homes, people in private renting have been suffering. So the great sense of contribution from the City of London and from finance is not really there. So a lot of people, I guess, who are excluded, who are poor, would be saying, you know, you know what, it doesn't really matter. I don't care if the City of London, as it were, offshores itself and moves to Frankfurt and Paris, because that hasn't really delivered for us the everyday working uh, people. So there may be, in a strange, perverse kind of way, there may be some benefits, because it will take some of the heat. Out of the economy, now, the risk of that obviously is that it doesn 't just take the heat out of the economy, it takes power out of the economy it takes a fundamental employer out of that system. so this is one of the major risks of brexit we 're going to see Kent on the, the border of France there becoming like a kind of lorry park uh, you know because of the the, the friction around flows of, of goods and services um, it 's likely to i guess highly problematic for London it actually in the medium and long term if it continues to go as it, as it, as it appears to be.
0: Um, so what was your biggest takeaway from your book?
1: Um, one of them, I suppose, one of the key issues is that um, the wealth inequalities are probably greater than we imagine and But also that there's a longer history to this, you know, that what we think of as the alpha city today, you know, in many ways, London has always been one of a number of absolutely core cities around the globe that has benefited. But the main shift that we see is international wealth rolling into the city. Um, that, That has kind of Taken over large, increasingly large parts of the city. So the alpha that I talked about earlier on—that's you know along the the entire sort of strip of the river, the west end of London—it extends out into the counties around London and so on. And um, it's a kind of hidden world that we don't. You know, we all think that we know London. We think that we know the excesses, we know the disparities, but actually. It is a complicated thing. And so what the book is really trying to do is fit that thing together as a system to understand how the mobilities, the money laundering, the history of the city, all kind of combine in ways that create this very invisible uh, set of social networks and so on. Very kind of enclosed, very private, very secretive world. Uh, Trying to dig into that tells us a lot about how the city works, how the politics of the city works. Um, But I think the primary thing is to think about how the city is like a theater, you know, it allows people with money to come and hide themselves and to distance themselves, to make invisible the poor of the city. They don't see the difference. They don't see, they don't encounter social distress. And what that does is leads to a really kind of callous politics. Because it means that if you're in power, you can say it doesn't really matter about people who are homeless or people who are living in overcrowded accommodations so on. I don't see those people. You know, those people don't vote for me. Um, so we get this kind of low-tax uh world at the top, which is accelerating wonderful, you know, parties and all the rest of it. And it, you know, it's a bit like um, you know, France before the revolution, perhaps, in the sense that. This very callous policy-making elite don't really care about a lot of this stuff. Um, so, sorry, I'm kind of rambling a bit there, but <laughs> <Don't be sorry. laughs> uh, I think you know the, the the takeaway is that we need to think about the city as a space that helps to create a mentality of insulated riches that does not connect with everyday people and does not connect with a lot of the pain that we've seen that came through austerity and the pain that is immediate and happening right now in terms of COVID. Because of course, what we're talking about now is not the West End of London, we're talking about the stately homes, that everybody wants to move out to the countryside, everyone wants to move to a desert island or whatever and get away from the risks at the moment. My money is on, you know, with a vaccine in sight, is that this geography will reconnect, it will come back together in ways that People will want to be in the city. The city is where you go to be seen. You know, if you want to um, connect with the key policy makers, the people in the city and finance and all the rest of it, if you want to make deals, you've got to be close to people ultimately. And you want to be there because that's fun, you know. Uh, For everybody else, it's much less fun.
0: So for the people that wouldn't, aren't impacted by these things, why should they, people care? Why should the multimillionaires and billionaires care about things that aren't going to directly impact them?
1: Yeah, a, I mean, that's a really good question. Uh, why should people care? I think people should care because there is quite a significant um, level of inequality that a lot of people are prepared to talk about. And there's a question mark about you know how how big is that? But a lot of people are sensing that it isn't just the fact that you know that person earns more than me, but when people see people earning money in inverted commas through just simply owning uh, a vast property portfolio in London, uh, owning you know, massive shareholdings and so on, just simply speculating in that environment. Um, When they see that that's an unfair system, that taxes at the top are much lower than for people at the bottom, when it's unfair as well as unequal, then you've got real problems. Because then people start to ask much more searching questions about why those people are not contributing a fair share. And what's happened recently is that the Brexit politics has muddied the waters. It's made, you know, all attention in the last British general election, Was on Brexit. The next election, it's going to be on who got us out of COVID, on who helped us to get out of that. And so we see debates now about, you know, what kind of pay care home workers are on versus Jeff Bezos and how much income you know he's got. How much his wealth has gone up in the last uh, few months as a result of lockdowns and, and Amazon distribution and all the rest of it. The debate is about nurses. Uh, pay versus people working at the top end in the city of London and so on, so the people the reason that people should care about this is a moral one that it, I think the, the system is palpably unjust, but even if we could just moderate the excesses at the, the margins at the top, the amount of contribution that that would bring in to the state in terms of public housing, health services and all the rest of it that would diffuse a lot of the anger and sense of injustice that a lot of people feel and they would say, you know what, we can afford to have millionaires and billionaires because they pay their way, they they give back to the community. And a lot of people would say, you know, look at the great philanthropic work that people do, you know, look at the the wings of our art institutions, the the universities that have been recipients of money, the research foundations and all the rest of it. We know that that is just really at the margins, that it is not a significant contribution, that it tends to be at the whims of whatever somebody thinks is, you know, their pet hobby horse issue, a particular disease, a particular cause that they want to follow at this moment. Life is far too strategically important, you know, to be left to the whims of a particular billionaire who has a, you know, a hobby horse uh, set of social issues. It needs to be done strategically, and I think, you know, for my own part, I was saying, you know, that money should be taxed more efficiently and effectively and justly, and that money channeled through the state in strategic ways. That say, you know, these are the key points of social stress at the moment. You know, it's not a museum in London at the moment; it is the northeast of England that is desperate because of COVID mortality, is job, labour market insecurity, and all the rest of it. Um, so people at the top should be uh, trying to do something about this, because it's the right thing to do. And and yet, in many cases, they're fighting the other way. You know, they're fighting for low taxes. They're fighting to see even greater share of income. I mean, the, the, the hunger amongst some of the billionaires to just simply win out even more is if nothing else, just profoundly ecologically damaging. So if you look at the super yachts, the private jets, the enormously carbon hungry lifestyles, none of that is to be emulated. It needs to be, it needs to be brought back down to earth, not because we're envious of it, but because we have to do that if we're gonna tap into you know, having a green new deal or indeed having some kind of a planet that is worth inhabiting over the next five, 10, 50 years.
0: So what is the biggest misconception that people have with all of this? And what's the one takeaway that you would like our listeners to take from this interview?
1: Um, Sorry, you have to repeat that first question again. Uh, What's the
0: biggest misconception? The
1: biggest misconception? Um, I think the biggest misconception is that the rich simply lift all boats. You know, their investments, their lifestyles, their money uh, is such a wonderful thing for the city, that it promotes development activity, that it helps the city of London which brings in taxation, that it creates new housing and uh, it creates jobs for people who are the servants, the people in the art galleries and all the rest of it. I think that is a fundamental misconception and Actually, the way I would frame this is a little bit in the way that some of my colleagues do to think of this as a finance curse, that the wealth of the few is actually corrosive to the life of the city. So we can talk about you know new housing being developed, but does it matter if you can't afford it? You um, can talk about you know people coming into the city and uh, spending money on luxury goods and you know, the luxury market, uh, in helping to inflate the, the share market and all the rest of it. None of that really relates to the ordinary everyday economy. So we can sort of say the counter to that is that, well, they pay taxes and all the rest of it, but we now know that they really don't pay enough taxes. And in many cases, they're very aggressive tax avoiders or tax evaders. That's open, an open secret in that sense. So I think the misconception of a kind of trickle down economics that this helps the city is a pretty profound misconception. Many people on the ground would say that they all they already know that, you know, they already see how they see the inequality, they see the the disbenefits that it brings uh, to them Uh, in terms of A kind of fundamental takeaway message from the book. um, I think the fundamental thing is to say that we need to attack the question of inequality in a less aggressive way you know, that it isn't, as I said in the opening, that it's not about climbing in on particular individuals. Let's think about this as a system. The system is London, the system is the UK, it's a world system, it's Canada or whatever. Let's start having a constructive debate about what comprises a just contribution, a positive contribution that helps to reinvigorate and refloat the economy because Right now,
0: we really need those kind of ideas. Well, I wanted to thank you for your time and you brought up a lot of great points that even if it's not London, no matter where you live, we all have our own alpha city and what that looks like and how we address those inequalities, it needs to be done. And I thank you for your time today and This is Laura for Next Big Thing Magazine. I've been speaking with Roland Atkinson. Thank you so much.